This episode is brought to you by IVP. As our society increases in ethnic and religious diversity, younger generations are increasingly resistant to traditional Christianity. In his book, Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? Antipas L. Harris conducts a sweeping examination of Christianity and concludes that the gospel is keenly relevant on matters of race, identity, and culture, as well as good news for all people of all ages. And as a listener of this podcast, you can receive this book for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25, that's I-V-P-O-D-2-5, at ivypress.com. This is IVP. What they mean is they watch a lot of cable news, they are on Twitch streams, they're posting on social media, and so there is this politics as entertainment. And if people think that that is what political engagement looks like, then yeah, you'll feel suffocated because you're actually not speaking into or really working with anyone in any kind of constructive way. And yet you're thinking, I'm spending so much time on politics and not making any progress. Welcome back to The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press. I'm your host, Caitlin Chess. Today, I'm talking to my friend Michael Ware about spiritual formation for political life. We talk about how the kind of people we are shapes our political life, the theological resources the church has for a better political life, and how we all might better prepare for this upcoming election year. Michael is the founder, president, and CEO of the Center for Christianity and Public Life, a nonpartisan, nonprofit institution based in the nation's capital with the mission to contend for the credibility of Christian resources and public life for the public good. For over a decade, he has served as a trusted resource and advisor for a range of civic leaders on matters of faith and public life, including as a White House and presidential campaign staffer. Michael previously led Public Square Strategies, a consulting firm he founded that helps religious organizations, political organizations, businesses, and others effectively navigate the rapidly changing American religious and political landscape. Michael's next book, The Spirit of Our Politics, Spiritual Formation and the Renovation of Public Life, will be released in January 2024. Michael and his wife Melissa live in Maryland, where they are raising their daughters, Sersha and Alaria. I have been learning from Michael for basically my entire adult life, and I'm really excited for y'all to hear this conversation today. Michael, thank you so much for doing this. I'm excited to talk to you about stuff that you and I have talked about a bunch before. This is not a new conversation, but thank you for for joining me today. Really good to be with you. Always love talking uh, talking with you. So we're spending this whole season of The Disruptors thinking about how Christians in particular can prepare for this upcoming election season, not just in terms of preparing to vote or doing research on candidates, but in terms of their emotional health, their spiritual health, their relationships with other people. Before we talk about that, about ways that people can do that, thinking about talking to you, I was thinking, well, like, why does that even feel so important? Like, I have not told anyone we're doing this and they've gone, oh, well, I don't need that. <laughs> they've been like, I'm exhausted. I'm 
worried. I'm having like memories maybe of 2020 or 2016 and feeling like that was relationally damaging for me. It was exhausting. It was difficult. Why do you think we've ended up in a place where things are so disordered and difficult that people aren't just preparing to kind of intellectually engage this? They're really afraid of how this will will harm their lives or be really emotionally difficult for them? It's a great question. I think uh, obviously so much goes into it. I, I do think the way in which, you know, politics has been encroaching on and, and affecting our personal relationships, our social lives, the lives of the institutions and communities of which we're a part. I do think there's like an aspect of of dread that is reasonable. I think what you alluded to is exactly right. Just a sense of, hey, things have been like pretty calm uh, when there's not a presidential election. Politics doesn't seem as uh, ubiquitous in political conversations, but we're entering into a season where it's, it's going to be water cooler conversation again, so to speak. I also think you know, politics has to do with it invokes and involves uh, money, sex, and power. Mm. And uh, those are three, John Tyson refers to them as the three sort of dominant idols of of the age. And they're, they're, they're three things that they demand our, our attention and they have the capacity to challenge our faithfulness. Hmm. And I think because we haven't done great thinking and there aren't great resources for helping Christians think about faithfulness in the context of politics, when political seasons come up, folks get overwhelmed by it. And then I, I think, Caitlin, like just it feels to many like a sort of optional area of life in which there are only downsides mm. we're like okay politics is like this area of conflict and argument and corruption and like i don't hold an up a, a public office like i don't like i have enough trouble in my own relationships in my own job but now i'm gonna be asked like like i'm gonna have demands on my character from this thing that really I feel I could do without. The American Psychological Association in 2016 had to put out an advisory on what they called election stress disorder. Um, and they recommended steps for relief. And so you have, you know, major public health institutions now speaking to this pressure and um, these these legitimate mental health issues that are that are coming as a result of people's thoughts and feelings and ideas about politics. I do face that in a lot of conversations I have where it's just like there's no upside to this. It's just difficult and contentious and messy. And I feel like it's especially been true in the post-2016 era for many Christians who felt betrayal from their religious leaders, who felt just like the questions that they were asking about that election were not questions that the leaders that they trusted had answers to, or they really were giving answers that felt counter to scripture and the gospel. And and so it just feels like there's no upside. I've heard you say or tweet many times a kind of criticism of the idea that many of those Christians who might be feeling that way have embraced the idea that they have found themselves politically homeless. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about why, both why you think that's so popular, because I hear that all the time, even from people who are not super online people, I hear them say similar things. And what might be misguided about that kind of framing? Many people 
now think about politics primarily through the lens of identity. They think about their political engagement through the lens of identity. And particularly, it's not a coincidence that many who grip so tightly to a partisan label now are gripping so tightly to the label of politically homeless. Like there's a through, there's a through line there. And it is this desire to have a name for your political identity. And this is what I am and have that sort of be a, and so, you know, what I, what I've said is that the crisis is not that Christians are uh, politically homeless. The crisis is that we ever thought we could make our home in politics at all. And the reason why it's a crisis is this sort of idolatry issue. It is this sort of identity issue. It's also, Caitlin, I caution against uh, the view that our political history started in 2015 with mm -hmm. Donald Trump coming down that escalator. It helps to alleviate so many other questions if Donald Trump came out of nowhere and was this sort of uh, breaking point that some people had the sort of moral impulse to see and others didn't. And thank goodness that I'm I'm one of those with the vision to know that this was the breaking point and nothing else before it, you know, yeah. counts. Um, but, but this is the pivot point at which things turn. There are a lot of problems with that, but, but one of which is I'm worried that like a Trump lens on our politics will mean we'll miss so much else that's going on. The other thing that, that happens is it can be a, a pathway towards political withdrawal and a disengagement as opposed to a healthier form of political engagement than what people are used to. But if you move from believing that your political party had everything right to a position that essentially, and I know it works differently for, for different people, but I just, um, there is this idea that, well, I am too right. I am too moral to have anything to do with these political parties, as if that's what they're for, as if we join political parties because they already have everything figured out, as opposed to political parties ideally serving as vehicles for mediating difference, not imposing a point of view. The political parties are meant to mediate the differences that exist within them. And so I would urge folks to think about the through line. It, I don't say this to sound harsh, but like maybe your way of thinking about politics actually mm -hmm. hasn't mm -hmm. changed all that much. If, uh, if you think the options are politically homeless, I won't have anything to do with any political party or politician. And previously, you had posters up on your wall of, of, uh, of you know, a, an elephant or a, or a donkey. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I hear that a lot from people who also, they're not just articulating, I think what you've just said, I think underlying it is that they haven't really changed their idea of how politics works. But what they'll often say too is, I have seen the power of maybe not actually the organization of a party, but like the sense that people in that party have of what loyalty looks like or what political participation mm. looks like. That pull is so powerful that maybe for Christians in particular, participation in whatever form that I have identified isn't possible because doing it will just inevitably harm you. And so I'm curious what you what you would say to that, but also for people who might be saying, no, I'm not saying that that it's impossible, but like maybe for me it is, or maybe in this moment it is, or maybe these forces are just too powerful. 
Is there a way for us to do that, to be more thoughtful about that? Because I do think they're identifying a problem of people kind of yes. went headfirst in without any thought to how it would form them. But is is the alternative really just, okay, it's too powerful, I can't do anything? Or is there a way to do it well? Yeah. So I think in individual cases, I think, think this is so important, Caitlin. Um, I think abstention, uh, particularly like bound by time, is a, a valuable spiritual a discipline for folks. So the the last thing I'd want people to to hear is that regardless of what you're discerning with the Holy Spirit, you know, you need to you need to show up at the next local party meeting. Like that's not it at all. And I do think we need to be cautious around um, the kind of power that that mm -hmm. politics and political institutions can exert on us. I also think about. Paul's guidance in Romans, uh, which is there being uh, great grace and us needing to give room uh, for those whose consciences, mm. uh, you know, in, in 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 Paul's context, he's talking about what you what you eat and drink, um, but uh, folks whose consciences don't allow them to engage in politics with a clean heart mm -hmm. and a clear mind. So I want to I want to give give space again particularly as a spiritual discipline in cases where it's necessary or edifying for that sort of abstention. One of the big problems we have Caitlin is that so much of what we call politics is not really politics at all. So there's a there's a political scientist at Tufts, Etan Hirsch, who wrote a book Politics is for Power, but it's in this book that he introduces the term political hobbyist, which I have found to be incredibly helpful. And his point is many people who would say that they are engaged in politics, that they follow politics closely, uh -huh. are actually not involved in any of the work of actual political engagement and building power for political decisions. What they mean is they uh, watch a lot of cable news. They are on Twitch streams. They are uh, they're uh, posting on social media, um, and so there is this politics as entertainment. And if people think that that is what political engagement looks like, then yeah, you'll feel suffocated because you're actually not speaking into or, or really working with anyone in any kind of constructive way, and yet you're thinking. I'm spending so much time on politics and not making any progress. You're uh, spending time on politics as a observer, as a spectator, as a hobbyist. I have a friend who reached out to me. He's a professor. His son was spending a lot of time following a sort of political talker, pundit. Dad was a, a bit worried, not about that his son was thinking about politics a lot, but more that his son was, he didn't like the mode of political uh, <laughs> sort of thought that this, it was a twitcher was uh, conveying. And my advice to him was perhaps the temptation would be to sort of limit his time on that or uh, try to steer him away from politics. But the most helpful thing might be to actually point him towards constructive, difficult political engagement. So his son had all kinds of ideas about the kinds of policies that he'd like to see. But as long as he was staying on Twitch, he never had to think about, well, in a diverse community uh, with 
political institutions through which at some point these ideas have to be sort of moved forward, how, how would I actually get any of these ideas implemented? Maybe he should be spending time at school board meeting uh, if he cares about education. And all of a sudden, once you actually start doing real political engagement, you start to have to recognize the humanity of the people who disagree with you. You have to start recognizing the reason why uh, things that you think should happen haven't happened yet. And uh, typically the answer is not just because no one has no one is as brilliant of, as you to even conceive of the idea. And so that can be really helpful and grounding and community building as opposed to thinking that uh, what it means to be politically involved is to listen to a lot of people with opinions and to have a lot of opinions yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so helpful, Michael. I feel like I see this a lot on social media where people will sometimes encourage each other, like, let's be really politically involved. Let's be educated. And it's like, watch a bunch of C-SPAN and like, here's a bunch of posts about kind of infographics of information. And I I remember talking to someone in my church who said, I'm just exhausted by all of this. And I asked yes. them questions and basically that's what they were doing. They were like, I just need to consume a bunch of material. Yes. And I said, you know, there's like an actual like town hall meeting that will happen at a church in our community where you'll hear people that live near you talking about things that are happening near you. And in my experience, that can be really taxing in some ways, but it's also really encouraging and motivating and actually gives you a lot of energy in a way that just like sitting and consuming things doesn't. And I I do worry that it actually, there's a real trade-off there. Like you're exhausted. You can't do that other stuff that yes. really could be beneficial. Another thing I have heard you say a lot, especially over the last year, as I've been in the fellowship program for your Center for Christian and Public Life, is talking about the kind of people that we need to be for for doing politics better. And I've been struck by how the first time I heard you say that, I don't remember when it was, I remember thinking like, wow, that's such a good line. Like, that's such an interesting idea, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to think. Like, that's a that's actually just like a very normal Christian thing to say that the kind of people we are really matters for the communities that we're in. What difference do you think it makes to kind of reorient the question that way? Because what I tend to hear is, what do I need to do? Like, what does faithful mm. Christian action in the world look like? I don't often have people ask, what kind of person do I need to be to do this? Yeah, Caitlin, thank you for uh, th thank you for this question. It's at the heart of the work that we do. It's at the heart of uh, my book that'll come out in January, The Spirit of Our Politics. And, you know, I've seen politics up close, I know the structures and the policies and uh, the systems. And you would think maybe that, that like the closer that you get to these systems, the further away like the human personality would would uh, get. And instead, one, I don't know if I'd call it a, sh a shocking thing, but one revelation or uh, understanding I came to is how much power at the heart of our systems and our structures, how much power the human personality has. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that it's actually these systems accentuate the power of the human personality, not do away with it or or evade it. The kind of people we are has much to do with the kind of politics that we have. And in a representative democracy that, yes, has flaws, the, the will of people is not perfectly translated into our politics. You can just look at surveys uh, about, you know, how many people support 
uh, you know, 80% of the American public supporting this policy, and yet it's not enacted to so, to show some imperfections in how people's will can be translated. And yet, if you read the news closely, you will see how often people in real decision-making power are making decisions based on their perception and often the reality of how they think people will respond. It is often a a common sort of complaint, right? Like, why can't politicians air positive ads and talk about what they're going to do for the country uh, instead of these character attacks? This is not to alleviate responsibility from the campaigns and the politicians who run the ads, the ad makers who make them. But what's also clear is that the people watching the ads, us, we are like the data is really clear. We are much more likely to be enticed by negative political advertising than to give even a minute ad laying out someone's policy ideas on a subject of importance, the time of day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's an incentive structure uh, that has much to do with the things that we personally complain about, but that we also contribute to as individuals uh, with the level of input that an individual watching an ad, you know, would have. And so, Uh, For this reason and others, I'm convinced that spiritual formation is central to civic renewal. So some people have this idea that, well, yes, that's why, you know, the church needs to clean up its act and then we'll be Mm -hmm. ready for political engagement. And my argument would be that spiritual formation doesn't work that way. No, actually, the formation will happen as we're engaging. Put these questions to the side until we get ourselves right. Part of getting ourselves right is asking these questions with formation in mind. And it's actually one of the great weaknesses is is this idea that our public life, our politics is sort of ill fit for the way of Jesus. And it's not just a profession of belief until we actually believe that the way of Jesus holds up in public life, then whole life discipleship is is impossible. Mm. There will be areas of our life in which we'll simply say, Jesus is not Lord. Um, and that's how that's that's how we'll we'll act. That relates so much to the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is what resources do you think the Christian faith has beyond just a question of of policies or kind yeah. of particular political programs? I I've been promoting a book about the Bible and politics, and I've noticed that when I say that I'm doing that, people's initial response is like, oh, there's like four places this is relevant. It's like Romans 13, the laws in Deuteronomy. Like they know the places they think are relevant as if that's representative of our entire public life is a bunch of kind of commands or ideas about what community, how communities should be structured. And no one ever is like, well, what does this passage about the resurrection mean for our political lives? Or like this passage about sanctification and what this conflict in the church, this they're always going to these like handful of places that seem like explicit Christian teaching about government. They're not really thinking that there are other theological resources for our public life, not just the content of it, but the form that we have in it, the kind of people that we are. When you think about that, what are other things that we might not be thinking about? Other, You know, yes, not kind of impugning someone's character, but what about the whole of the Christian faith or the truth of the gospel do you think is 
especially relevant to our public life that we might be missing? <laughs> One of the reasons why people just go to three or four places, and this is a realization I, I came to, and I was kind of embarrassed that it took me so long because I've just dealt for so much of my life in the, the world of faith and biblical faith and politics um, that I, it took me so long to connect the dots. But, you know, what some people call a propositional faith is then imported into our politics. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, what does the, what does the Bible have to say about politics? Well, there are these like three or four verses that as long as I sort of get those right in my, as long as I'm able to repeat them back to you, mm -hmm. then I have a biblical approach to politics or my views of uh, salvation are on uh, text A, B, and C, and that's it. And I got those wrapped up and this is the, put a bow on it and here it is. Here's, mm -hmm. here's salvation. What we miss is the life of Jesus and the life that he offers to us. The doctrinal statements are attempts to express the fullness of that life. They are not the fullness of that life itself. And so when we think about the resources of the Christian faith and what it has to offer in our political life, the idea, the gentleness of Jesus would hold up in political life is laughable to many people. Yeah. That says much about their view of politics. It says more about their view of God and their view of like the kind of person that Jesus must be when he, when he really needs to get something done. So yeah, like characteristically, Jesus is kind <laughs> and gentle and meek. But if he ever really had to get something done, that wouldn't be his his approach. It's actually Jesus has the luxury yeah, yeah. <laughs> of being kind and gentle. And, and those are like the cracks that we that we get into, like what our actual beliefs are about the world and the way it works. And so, you know, I, I think it's uh, the resources of the faith are historical, theological intellectual, institutional, the history of persons filled with the Holy Spirit and the way that their lives have poured, uh, the, the, there's been an outpouring of their hearts that have blessed the communities and the civic institutions in which, in which they've served uh, and, and lived. I write in the upcoming book quite a bit about this framework for describing the kind of polarization we have today. And I like this model because it doesn't it's not comparative. It doesn't try to suggest that we have, we're more polarized now than we were 20 years ago or a hundred years ago. I think that leads into some debates that I'm not necessarily, mm -hmm. I don't think are the most pressing. The fact is that we're polarized mm -hmm. today. What is the nature of that polarization? They said that the kind of polarization we have today, which they call political sectarianism, is a toxic cocktail of basically three ingredients, aversion, an aversion uh, towards your your political opponents, uh, othering, and a misplaced moralization. Mm. And what I argue in the book is that the Christian faith offers tremendous resources for undermining each of those three pillars or ingredients. I actually think if we looked at the political questions of the day, there's a lot of conversation now about uh, social isolation 
and loneliness. I'd love to see more Christian voices, not just say, come to the church and we'll, you'll experience community, but say that there are resources that we offer that can help the world about the human condition and the scourge of loneliness and why loneliness affects us as people who are made for relationship with others. And so, yes, we need to call people to the church. Willard referred to pastors as spokespeople for Christ. And uh, he thought that the role of the pastor was not uh, just for the local church, but that the pastor is actually bringing knowledge to the public and the community they serve. And that's a vital uh, sort of a pivot I think we need to make, especially in this time of, you know, uh, religious disaffiliation and secularization. We actually need to start thinking of our role as, yes, caring for the local church, caring for Christian community, uh, but also what do we have to offer the mm -hmm. public? It's hard to be faithful in our civic engagement without succumbing to polarization. We can oversimplify complex ethical issues and corner ourselves into harsh theological extremes. In their book, Compassion and Conviction, the leading voices behind the Anne campaign call for biblical nuance to characterize our Christian public life. This approachable book is an appeal to follow Christ's command to care for our neighbor in truth and love. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount on Compassion and Conviction at ivypress.com. How would you articulate that in a different way, Christianity in public life in a different way? Or, or maybe even how would you encourage people who might be thinking, I'm a Christian, I care about um, the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus. I just, any concept of that being relevant in public life is unappealing to me, not because I don't think I can have that hold up in public life. I want to be Christ-like. I just think that doing that explicitly in any way might harm my neighbors who are not Christians or might be done in a coercive way or might just be kind of like cheesy and sentimental. And I'm just like not interested mm -hmm. in any of the forms that I yeah. have seen. Part of the problem is that we have a model of Christian political engagement, which is done as an act of imposition. Mm-hmm. That is our first frame of reference for thinking about, okay, either politics is sort of not the mission, not a responsibility that Christians have or should take up, or the responsibility of Christians is to impose their values on a sort of like unwilling populace mm -hmm. through whatever means uh, they can get their hands on. I think that, you know, obviously needs to be rejected outright. What will be life-giving is a Christian political engagement, which is not done as an act of uh, imposition, but out of a spirit of loving service mm. as an offering. And offerings can be rejected and offerings have uh, limits on what the distribution <laughs> sort of, sort of mecha mechanism is. Because Christians find their security in the gospel and in life with Jesus, it is Christians which have unique resources, not the only resources. It's not that other people can't do this, um, but Christians have unique resources to draw upon because they find their security in the kingdom of God to engage in politics 
in a way that is freed up from so many of the burdens that are some of them rightly and, and many others wrongly placed on our politics. Because we're not going to politics to get our spiritual needs met, we can go to politics in a way that is other-centered, in a way that is out of a spirit of loving service. I think a few things would be helpful in this regard. Uh, one, uh, we've done so much storytelling over the last, and I think it's important storytelling. We've done so much storytelling over the last seven, 10 years, especially about the failures of the moral majority and disappointments that we have in our parents' generation and the ways in which Christian politics can go wrong. We need to tell the story of condemnation. Um, A, we ought to be very careful about condemnation. B, even a story of critique and certainly of condemnation uh, won't give or provide vision for the future. And as you know, Caitlin, and what you've evidenced in so much of your work is that there are really beautiful stories to tell of Christians uh, who have made positive civic and political contributions that haven't been perfect. They're not perfect people. If that's what we're looking for, you know, like the, that we're not going to find that in finance or business. After an event that I had in, in New York, a woman came up to me and said, I'm so glad that you're there in DC, Michael, trying to be faithful uh, for Jesus. DC must be full of so many compromises. And, um, and we talked for 10, 15 minutes, and I, I finally asked her, what do you do uh, uh, for work uh, here? And she goes, oh, I work on Wall Street. And, you know, you just, you just, you just, you just recognize, well, maybe we could have a mutual conversation about the challenges that we face in our vocations and the challenges that we face dealing with money and politics. Uh, Wall Street is not exactly immune to politics either, <laughs> you know, like, and so I think that we can actually draw on our, on our history, mm -hmm. not just for examples of what not to do, mm -hmm. but for examples of what to do, mm -hmm. uh, of models that we can take up. Uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot more to say there, but yeah, that would be an encouragement. Yeah, I do. I, I so appreciate you saying that because I do feel like that's the assumption that people have right off the bat is, oh, well, tell me how everything has been so wrong and bad. <laughs> and and there's a lot to lament and repent of, but also yes. Yes. we are not without resources for thinking positively about what we're doing. When you think about that, when you think of wanting to articulate a story of faithfulness in public life, what examples come to mind for you? Like, is there yeah. a person or a movement or some, you know, yeah. something in your own life or in history that, that you could point to as not perfect, obviously, but, but something that, that is good for us to think about as a positive example of this kind of work? The civil rights movement is obviously a salient example. And I think there's, there's been a lot of good work over the last 10 or 15 years that has respected and um, helped shine light on mm -hmm. the Christian influence on not just the presentation. One of my favorite documents is the Montgomery Improvement Association. It's this one-page document, and it's instructions for those participating in the Montgomery bus boycott. Mm -hmm. And that document, to me, is the epitome of spiritual formation mm -hmm. and discipleship meeting social action. It has guidance around be prepared to absorb evil 
but respond uh, with joy. It has obviously guidance around nonviolence. It has guidance around being willing to receive, uh, to never assume antagonism mm -hmm. until it's displayed, to be ready to receive help from unlikely sources or what you would deem to be, or, or maybe a suspect would be an unlikely source. I think Mac McCarter and the work that he's done for decades, building community through his work in uh, Louisiana is a, a wonderful example. I think uh, there's a young, young guy by the name of Joe Nail who has started an organization called Lead for America. And it's this wonderful nonprofit. It's not a, not a Christian nonprofit, but Joe, his faith and his convictions and drive towards public service have resulted in this organization. I love the model for this. They, they place grad students back in their local hometowns to serve in local government it's it's this beautiful sort of like reverse brain drain uh, situation. It incentivizes uh, folks who want uh, to pursue public service, but may feel, well, I just racked up all these student loans. I, I, I can't really, if uh, gives them a pathway to do so. And it bolsters the intellectual and, and social capital of local communities that, that are often looking for people who will, serve in critical sort of governmental uh, roles. I think often we excuse away acts of courage and conviction mm. as, oh, they just didn't know better or they were foolish. And then we over-identify with the acts of, of malice and the acts of antagonism, particularly if there's some Christian language mm -hmm. that serves as a veneer of it. And there's a weird way, Caitlin, in which the extremes conspire to make that the case. Mm. There's a weird way in which both folks who want to promote a sort of antagonistic model of Christian political engagement as like just what's necessary, and those who don't uh, want or can't conceive of a positive Christian uh, mode of political engagement, there's a way in which they both work to say, you know, what the what the foolish thing is, is those folks in Montgomery thinking that they could stand up to oppression and segregation with joy. With joy? Are you serious? <laughs> Have you read? Hey, uh, you must just not know the history <laughs> if you if you think that joy could have anything to do with overturning those systems have you seen the poverty in louisiana and the and the crime you think that building a, a community gardens is going to have anything to do with how people feel about themselves and how people how people act and yet we see throughout time and space uh, that acts motivated by christian impulses and ideas and resources um actually uh, surprise people quite often about the actual good uh, that comes from them in ways that, yeah, upset the sort of economic presumptions of the world, but that's how Jesus always works. And we need to start having confidence in in some of, some of those things, as opposed to thinking that politics is the area of life in which we must succumb to the logic of the world so that, that maybe in our personal lives, 
we could now and then follow follow Jesus. No, this holds up in in all of life. I was talking to someone recently who was expressing something like like you were just saying of like, come on, like this is not, you know, and I remember thinking like, well, you do have to really believe it. Like if you don't really believe it, then yes, this is ridiculous. But I just like actually believe in the resurrection <laughs> and that changes everything, it turns out. Michael, I want to ask you one more question that we're asking everyone this season, which is a really practical one. I'm imagining people listening who are anticipating the 2024 election, as we've already said, with a lot of dread. And they're thinking about very specific conversations and relationships. They're thinking, I'm going to be around a Thanksgiving table. I'm going to be sitting next to someone in a pew. I'm going to be in you know, Bible study and this question will come up. And they're not necessarily looking for answers to everything, um, but they are maybe wondering, what does it look like for me to prepare for that emotionally, spiritually, relationally, even along the lines of, of the document you were just referencing? Are there things that they can do to, to be the kind of people who can have that conversation well. Maybe we're not even thinking about like being in a voting booth or showing up to a city council meeting. We're just going like, how can I be the person that when my neighbor at church brings up some political topic, I don't misrepresent the gospel or ruin this relationship or harm my soul in some kind of way? These situations are tough and they're real and you're gonna like make, make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Make sure you're really listening. When we're engaging with people, we're trying to help them. And yet when politics comes into the discussion, our framework for politics is debate and shutting people down. And I think that's harmful in like our political systems. And right, like I don't think it's a good thing that you have, you know, the, the uh, these Senate hearings in which no one is even responding to what the other person said. So people always say, you know, politics is upstream of culture. What that fails to recognize is the way in which politics is culture. Mm -hmm. And so people see how our politicians act. They they watch cable news and see how how political discourse works there. And then they uh, often subconsciously import that mode of antagonism into conversations that have no public stake. Yeah. They're important conversations. I get the impulse. If your uncle is a sitting U.S. senator, maybe you shouldn't let him off the hook at the Thanksgiving uh, table. But I, I would advise that that maybe shutting your uncle down or the person at church in that brief encounter that may not be the highest moral calling that's, that's placed on you in that particular circumstance. So actually listen, don't be preparing your rebuttal. Actually listen to what the person is saying. Seek to affirm what you can in the impulses uh, of what the person that you're talking with is saying. Be wary of speaking to the motivations of the person that you're encountering with and assuming the motivations and the background of what is feeding into their thought process and try to, at least at the beginning of the conversation, treat them as their own person uh, and the respect that that uh, accords. What I will say is, right, what a lot of people are worried about are these sort of like repeated encounters with folks who, who consistently don't respect them yeah. and, and consistently impugn motives on them. Yeah. And I just say, first, relieve yourself of that sense that you don't have strong enough convictions if you're not willing to take up every battle that comes your way. There are just some conversation and some people where you just need to 
say, uh, look, I, I, I love you. I enjoy spending time with you. I love your children. Um, you've given so much to me in my life. If we can't get together without politics coming up and this pressure that I feel, this testing that I feel, then this relationship is just not going to be what it what it should be and what it can be. And feeling okay with doing that with with certain certain relationships is necessary. It's been it's been necessary uh in in my life. And then just the last thing I'd say is give people time to change. People are beating up themselves for not changing their mind on this issue or not changing their approach or looking back on old social media posts and going, gosh, what was I thinking? And they spend so much time thinking about the the miss opportunities that they had to change their minds. And there's a sort of, I think, like a self-rejection that goes on in their not wanting to give other people the time to change. Like, I wish I would have changed so much sooner. And the fact that you haven't changed yet is inexplicable. Like I had my breaking point. Why haven't you had yours? You might still be in process. <laughs> and so don't think that wherever you are now is like the final state of, of things. Every day is an opportunity for folks to decide where, where they stand. And obviously this applies to issues and different political parties and factions, but like Part of the dignity we grant to our fellow citizens is the dignity that they have a will Mm -hmm. that can be effectuated and that they can change their minds and, and that kind of thing. It's one of the most helpful things I think I've heard you say, Michael, in that and it's so it's a good representation too of of why we have to do some internal work in order to do this well. If we still haven't processed our own feelings about our own past and maybe shame about our, you know, past. We're not able to have that conversation well. We're not able to to build a better relationship with someone we disagree with. So thank you so much for that. Um, and thank you for the work that you're doing to, to help us navigate this well. The Disruptors is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Andrew Bronson, Myla Kim, Helen Lee, and Travis Albritton. Our production assistant is Isis Toldson. And I'm your host, Caitlin Shess. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel. And leave a rating and review to support the podcast. Yeah.